Paul groups, including the content we're going to go over. Okay, so we're going to be in Acts today. If you want to turn to your Bible or your Acts journal in ch- to chapter 21, this is where we're going to start. And uh, I just want to let you know where we've been, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Acts, to let you know where we've been so that you can know where this story that we're going to read comes from. So the final third or so of Acts is really about Paul's journeys, and he's traveling around Eastern Europe, Western Asia, to spread the gospel, to plant new churches, and to encourage churches that are that are just started, ones that have recently popped up because of what Jesus has done. Christianity, or as they called it in that day, the way, was spreading like wildfire, okay? It was going crazy. And so people like Paul uh, and Paul himself had to go around, make sure there wasn't you know, anything real weird going on. I mean, it's a church. There's some weird stuff. Obviously, you guys know you're part of this church. But for the most part, just making sure that things were going okay. And this worried the Jewish leaders of the day because they began to notice the prominence that was happening in the Christian movement or the way. And it was threatening their religion, but it also was threatening their social prominence because they had control in that narrative. So we're going to pick up in Acts 21. We're actually going to start verse 37 so that you can go there. But I want to give you just one kind of public service announcement as we go into this. We are going to read a lot of scripture today. There is so much that happens in this section that I thought it actually would take us less time to simply read the scripture and talk about a few things than for me to stand up here and tell you about what's happening, okay? Plus, we know that the Word of God is alive and active. And so any chance that we get to read it together is the best chance that we can have. So in verse 37, this is what it says, chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, remember this is because the Jewish leaders are very angry at him. They're trying to get at Paul. So Paul is about to be brought to the barracks. He said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then? Who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus, in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when, we had, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, we're going to pause right there. Just so you know, you kind of caught that, but there was rumors being spread about Paul and what he was doing, about how he was this leader of a bunch of assassins, okay? And Paul's like, no, no, I'm not that guy. My name's Paul. I'm from Tarsus, okay? So this is what he says, starting in chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city 
educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted, persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul's about to tell his testimony again. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will, you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. We'll pause right there for a second. So Paul begins this section with a few name drops. He's trying to prove his status, who he is and what he's accomplished. So first of all, he says that he's from Tarsus. Tarsus is a global hub of culture. It's sort of like what we would equivalent, the equivalent for us would be maybe like a New York City or a Los Angeles or Spokane, right? He's name dropping these important places that he's from. And then he drops another name, Gamaliel. This Gamaliel is like a superstar rabbi, and Paul actually was his understudy. So this would have been a really big deal to his audience. So what we see here happening is he's trying to relate to his audience. In a few moments, you're going to see that he also wants to stir it up in just a second. But he's saying, hey, listen, I am who I say I am. I'm not your enemy. I'm from here. I know these people I've studied here. And they kind of go, okay. And they start to listen even more. Continuing on in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, so it's at this point in the story that the crowd loses their mind. And it seems to be centered around this one last sentence that we just read, that Paul was actually called to go to the Gentiles. These devout Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah actually view the message of the gospel as a very dangerous thing to their faith because they're no longer in control of who's in and who's out. What we see here is that the gospel is actually offensive to their religion, right? The gospel offends simply because it is available to anyone who hears it and responds. And this is why they're becoming so hostile. It says in verse 22, it says, up to this word, they listened to him. They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Basically, let's kill him. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, apparently they're now, you know, ridiculous umpires at a baseball game. (laughs) The tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he would be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? That's got a question mark, but it was a rhetorical question. Paul knew the answer to that. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship, bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who are about to examine him, that is flog him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So you see it. They decide to flog Paul. And the reason why they want to do that is because they want to get to the bottom of this. The Roman officials are not sure why um, Paul, who is a Jew, has made all the rest of the Jews so angry. They're like, it can't possibly be about your testimony alone. Right? They're like, we've heard you say it. Sounds fine to us. You can believe whatever you want. Why are they so mad at you about this? But that's what happened. They're so mad at Paul's testimony because it threatens them. But then all of a sudden, as they're about to flog him, he pulls out this get-out-of-jail-free card, revealing his Roman citizenship. And this sets into motion a series of events that we're about to see are totally unbelievable and also absolutely part of God's plan. So in verse 30, it says this, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, this is chapter 23 now, brothers, 
I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So they, he's like, hey, hit him in the face. So he hits him in the face. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now that's some serious trash talk, okay? <laughs> Paul's laying the heavy stuff now. He's very upset. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul's acknowledging, hey, I didn't deserve that, but I also overstepped my bounds. He's trying to relate to them again. It's kind of this back and forth. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, this is where it gets real good, by the way, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Basically saying, Paul saying, the testimony that I'm giving is this one of Jesus. That's why I'm on trial. This is not what they want to hear. They're like, stop saying this, Paul. Stop telling the truth, okay? And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Man, this is a sharp turn of heart, is it not from the Pharisees? <laughs> we want him dead. Actually, he's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. He's one of us. Verse 10 says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, we're going to pause there. We're not done yet, but we're going to pause there. Something Pretty wild is revealed in these last two sections, and maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but let's talk about it. Paul's life up to this point is not lacking in significant moments. We've been through the book of Acts. He has had some incredible moments in his life, good and bad. But as we approach the end of Acts, it seems like there's this crescendo building in Paul's ministry. And it's being met with a ton of resistance. It's being met with a ton of resistance, which we know is a spiritual battle. The enemy is coming after Paul. So in the previous section, Paul reveals to the people who are holding him um, uh, hostage or, or captured that he is indeed a Roman citizen, which is true. And this gives him special access to the protection from any kind of unwarranted, whimsical punishment under Roman authority. He has this special protection as a blood-born Roman citizen. Now, that's one part. But he's also a former Pharisee, 
meaning that he can relate and speak to this group of people, the one that God has set him in front of, unlike anyone else, because he was once one of them. He is one of them. He's one of the people who are trying to get rid of him. So here's the point. God, long before this moment that we're reading about ever took place, knew that for this whole situation to play out as it's going to play out, that Paul would need both Pharisee bloodline and Roman citizenship. And there's no chance that this is a coincidence. It's God's provision on display in front of us. As I was prepping for this, I thought to myself, this isn't the the big idea, but I could not express to you how much worship that was born in my soul as I thought about the reality of what Paul needed from God to not get killed in this moment. And then that last verse says, take courage for as you have testified to these facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you also testify in Rome. God's coming to him again to remind him as if he didn't already know, I've got you and you're going to be fine. It doesn't seem like it, but you're going to be fine. God's provision on display. No situation too intricate or too impossible for God to do exactly as he intends to do. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 12 through 22 of this chapter 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but what happens is, is there's this plot to kill Paul. And in verse 12 through 14, this is what it says. This is worth taking note of. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Uh, That was a real bummer for them. No food or drink until it's done. That's a bad oath to take because it didn't work out. I kind of wonder what happened to them. I wonder if they just decided... Nah, okay, we, did, we didn't mean it, you know, or I don't know. But anyway, so they plot to kill Paul, but we know that it's not going to work. So picking it back up in chapter 23, verse 23, it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride to bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So what Paul's been given now by the local authority is the equivalent of a presidential motorcade to escort him out of that area to go see the governor, Felix. Verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when, I was, and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, 
ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so we're going to pause there in the narrative and pick it back up next week. But I want to talk about a few things that we observe that I think will be very helpful and encouraging to us. The first thing is this. Paul's audience from the start was what we might think of as like a town mayor. So he starts in front of the barracks, again presenting the gospel, right, through his testimony to what would be an audience that would maybe surround the mayor, Spokane City Hall. But through the process, through all of this nonsense that Paul's putting up with, he actually gains audience with what we would consider a governor. So now he goes from having this local audience to having a broader, bigger audience to which he then, which is the second detail, he goes and proclaims the gospel. Even though he's being held captive, he is now getting yet another opportunity to share the gospel with a more significant audience. This is truly incredible. And this leads us to what is the big idea from today's section, and it's this. When people try to suppress the gospel, it thrives all the more. When people try to suppress the good news of Jesus, it thrives all the more. We have tons of examples. I'm going to cover just a few from Acts, where we've been that show this very truth. Acts 4, Peter and John, they stand before the council. They're arrested. They're then released, and their testimony leads to greater boldness in the believers. Acts 5, the Sadducees, they arrest the apostles. And that night, an angel of the Lord frees them so that they can teach in the temple. The details in that story, incredible, right? Acts chapter 7, Stephen is murdered for sharing the gospel, but that leads the apostles and believers to spread out from Jerusalem, taking the gospel with them. What they intended to do through killing Stephen actually sent the gospel spreading like wildfire. It's unbelievable what God's doing. Acts 9, Saul, on his way to kill Christians, meets Jesus, converts. You know the rest. Acts 12, Peter imprisoned, but an angel again frees him from prison. I mean, we're talking deep shackles, cave-like prisons, and an angel shows up and frees him so that he can continue to spread the gospel. Acts 14, Paul is stoned at Lystra. He should have been dead. Nope. Here he is, still spreading the gospel. Acts 15, not even circumcision could stop the gospel. Can I get an amen from the men? Right? Not even circumcision as an adult can stop the gospel. The examples go on and on with great pressure, but the gospel prevails. And the reason is because the gospel is enough. So we arrive at this moment where we read God's word, 
And it shows us that not even captivity is going to hold the gospel hostage. It is going to thrive. And if you're asking yourself, like I ask myself, what is God trying to say to me in this moment? For me, I know that God has been speaking to me this entire week about this idea of resistance, spiritual resistance. And what he's been speaking to me, and I think he might do so to you as well through this passage, is that it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's actually a necessary thing for two reasons. The first one is this. Resistance presents an opportunity for God to do the miraculous in your life. Paul should not have ever made it to this moment in history. He should be dead, but it was not what God intended. What God intended is what we see happening in Scripture. It's an opportunity for God to do something miraculous. And number two, resistance is necessary for us to build up our spiritual muscles. Some of you might be familiar with this term. It's called muscular hypertrophy, okay? Now, whether or not you're familiar with it, I'm going to teach you a little bit about it, okay? In short, it's the process of the growth of your muscle cells. And this occurs when they're damaged, but in a good way, through resistance exercise. And then they repair through your body's natural um, repairing process. Now, there's lots of things that happen in there. I'm not going to get super science nerdy on you, but here's what you need to know. Muscular hypertrophy is how you build big muscles. And in order for this thing to take place in your muscle, you need resistance. You need resistance. Your muscles need weight, resistance, whatever that resistance looks like, in order for them to actually grow and get stronger. Well, the same is true for our spiritual muscles, in case you didn't know it. See, God designed the body, right? He also designed how things work in the spiritual world, right? And I think he's giving us a little clue that, hey, a little resistance every once in a while, according to Paul's testimony, might not be a bad thing. So it's possible, and it's actually likely, that the resistance you are feeling in your spiritual life that thing that feels like you just can't get past it, that that thing is actually exactly what you need to grow in order to do the things that God has intended for you to do. It's quite possible that the resistance, the thing that you wish would just go away, is the thing that God is doing in your life right now in order for you to accomplish the things he's intended for you to do. Because just like Paul, we have promises that every single thing we need to do and have in order to live the life he's intended for us to live is going to be provided for us. And when the gospel is suppressed, it thrives all the more. I get it. Resistance is uncomfortable. It's sometimes even very painful It makes you want to give up and quit. How many times do you think Paul wanted to quit on this journey? I've had moments where I want to quit, right? I'm sure we've all had moments where we want to quit the thing that God is asking us to do. But when I read a story like the one we read today, I'm reminded of how 
intricately woven God's provision is in the details of our life and the plans that he's laid out for them and the mission that he has set us on. And so I take his word, I store it in my heart, and I remember his promise to never leave me or forsake me. That's how God encouraged me this week. I believe he's doing the same for us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us and meet us in these places where it's so hard, where resistance is great, where things are just going the wrong way seemingly. We know better. We know that if we submit to you, that if we give you all of us, that you will indeed lead us down the paths that you've laid out for us, that you will indeed provide, and that there might be resistance, and this very resistance might actually be the muscle-building exercise that we needed to go on and do more, maybe greater, maybe more significant things than we're doing right now. But regardless of that, we know that the gospel is enough. And we know that when it seems like the gospel is being suppressed, that your message, your good news, your love and grace in our life, that when it feels like it's being beat down, it thrives all the more. So I pray that our lives would represent that, that your word would speak that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's getting kind of hot in here, so let me just give you just two reminders.